If you think you know which way it's going to go, make your bet at Sports Interaction, whatever sport. It's Sports Interaction has you covered pregame, live betting on all major sports events and all those prop bets. If you want to bet, sportsinteraction.com slash SDPN. Points at me. It's 19 plus. Please play responsible. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. How are you, Adam? I'm great, Alan. Excited for today. Pumped. I am really, I am really excited for today. Uh, we have as our guest the co-managing director of Octagon Basketball, uh, the agent for Yanis. We're going to talk about his journey. We're going to talk about how he got into basketball, and we're going to talk about the differences between representing NBA players and NHL players. Let's give a big welcome to Alex Saratsis. How are you, Alex? Good. You know what? I haven't had two people that excited to talk to me in, in a really, really long time. So, you know, I don't, I don't even, my wife and kids aren't even excited to see me. So the fact that you guys gave me that much of a welcome introduction, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, um, we have, we've been colleagues and we've worked together now for um, many years. And uh, I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for you and uh, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you manage your business. And uh, uh, two people who've been agents for many years have a lot of commonality uh, in our journeys and also some significant differences that uh, make it all interesting. So I've always been fascinated with how people who are agents today, how they got started. So you can tell us a little bit about you know, your upbringing and your journey. Um, you were born yeah, in Athens. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll keep it as as brief and as interesting as possible. So um, I was originally born in Greece um, from Athens. My parents are from a northern, the northern part of Greece. My father from Thessaloniki, my mother from a very small village called Soufli, grew up in an orphanage until she was about 18 years old and uh, got an older brother, younger sister. At the age of seven, my father's job moved us to Mexico. So at seven years old, packed up our bags, moved to Mexico, was there until we were about 14 years old. Um, I tell everybody, if they haven't seen, there's a Netflix series called 1994, which talks about all the issues that happened in 94 in Mexico. And in 94, we were, um, it started to get really dangerous in Mexico. Uh, I've told this story. My house got robbed three times. I was robbed at gunpoint. My mom was carjacked. And we, my father's job said, you know, it's time for you guys to leave. And Alan, you appreciate this. We were giving the choice to either move to the Czech Republic, which is your oh. second home, yep. or, or, or to Tokyo. Um, wow. My mother, who is a um, true nationalist, said, well, let's move back to the Czech Republic. It's a, it's a puddle jump back from home from Athens. And all three kids said, you know what? Fuck it. Let's move to Tokyo. So <laughs> I spent my high school years in Tokyo. Um, it was an amazing experience. Got to see all of Asia. I, I played basketball there against them. It was nothing serious. You know, I played against all the army and naval bases. And when I was, I'm giving you guys a whole story. When I was 18 years old, I had a choice to either go to university in England because I was an EU citizen and I thought everybody goes to England or to go to the US. And um, I didn't know anything about, I'd been to the US a couple of times. My father used to run marathons. So when we were in Mexico, we'd come to New York and I would stay at the Howard Johnson and read, eat a TGI Fridays. And I thought it was the most amazing <laughs> thing. And this was pre-NAFTA. We would come back with boxes of cornflakes and Cheerios because we had to buy them on the black market back in Mexico. So it was like my idea of the US was, you know, Times Square, Howard Johnson. That's what I thought the U.S. was. And uh, I uh, decided I want to try to come to the U.S. I didn't know anything about schools, anything about universities. I took the U.S. News and World Report at that point and applied to the top 10 schools, no safety schools, no anything like that. And my, at my ignorance, which probably was a good thing, was, you know, well, how difficult can Harvard be? I mean, it's, what, it's a university, right? I mean, it, it's, 
is is pen really that difficult? I mean, I'll apply to MIT and and I didn't even take algebra in high school and I thought MIT was going to be easy. So ended up getting into Northwestern uh, here in Chicago and at which the is AJ, an amazing school, amazing yeah, school. It was yeah. a wonderful school. I was I was very very lucky. I I honestly think there must have been another Alex Saratsis that they mixed up the applications and somehow I ended up getting in and. And it's really funny because when I think about like my job now, my father and my mother, who were still in Tokyo at the time, gave me two duffel bags. One was sheets and towels and the other was clothes. And they said, we'll see you in the summer because it was not an easy thing to go back and forth to Tokyo. So I ended up showing up to Northwestern and the day before school opened, you know, got in my dorm room, super excited to put the sheets on and put the towels on and put my, all my things in my dresser and woke up the next morning and saw kids coming in with their parents and the U-Hauls and the TVs and the fridges. And I remember thinking, holy shit, I'm not ready for this, right? <laughs> and it was really that my whole mantra in life has been, you just figure it out, right? Whatever it is, wherever you end up, you just figure it out. And um Ended up going, you know, graduated in three years at Northwestern. Uh, and truth be told, I never, I wanted to be a diplomat. Uh, growing up, I said, what do I want to do? I want to travel and I want to meet people. My mother used to be the secretary of the Greek embassy in Mexico. And I thought, hey, being an ambassador is a super cool thing. You get to travel the world. People treat you important. You live in a nice house. The only issue was that I needed to do two years of mandatory military duty back in Greece. And at that point, at the age of 21, I was like, I'm not going to spend two years in the military. I think my father is still upset about that fact, but I just, <laughs> they had me, they had, and it's funny because they, they, they immediately tell you where you're going to be. And I was stationed as a paratrooper on an island. And I was like, I don't know how to parachute. I've never been on an, on, jumped out of an airplane, but that was where they had me. And so I said, I'd interned with a couple of sports agencies in college. And I said, you know what? It was soon after 9-11. I could not find a job to save my life. I tell the story to everyone. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know players. I didn't grow up wanting to be an agent. And I legitimately told myself, well, let me just do this until I figure out what I want to do. Let me, let me just start pretending to be an agent at the age of 21 until I get a real job. Um, so... I'm giving you guys, I, I thought I was going to say short, but this is much longer. This is very, uh, as much as I love you, this is very an Alan-esque, you know, story that I'm just going to keep, <laughs> keep going. Um, keep going. Keep going. I'm on, I'm on the edge of my seat. Keep going. I, I've got all the love and respect in the world. And I, um, and, and I work for a gentleman here in the suburbs of Skokie. And I, I just remember the best thing that happened to me was he, he, we didn't have any structure. It was a two-man operation. We worked out of the back of a warehouse, uh, like a paper printing warehouse. And I just, I didn't know anybody. I didn't, you know, I, I had no connections whatsoever. I was lucky enough that at that point I spoke five languages. And I just said, you know what? If there's one thing that I could do, I know Europe. I know Asia. I know South America. Um, let me see what I could do. And that I just took that proverbial bull by the horns and said, I'm going to focus on on Europe. I'm going to focus on my international career because I knew that doing business just just by traveling. You know, I lived in Japan and I would go play basketball in Singapore. Well, it's not the same as Japan. You know, I would go to uh, have tournaments in South Korea. It's not the same. And just from a young age, I understood that, you know, each country operates differently. I didn't understand it from a business perspective, but I knew how to relate to people and um, we, I ended up um, leaving that job in 2005 uh, because I said I wanted to go to business school. So I said, well, why don't I do this? I'm going to start my business school applications. I got a call at that point from a gentleman by the name of Tim Grover, who was Michael Jordan's trainer here in Chicago. And he said, and we developed a nice little relationship, said, there's a guy here in Chicago that might need your expertise. A gentleman by the name of Henry Thomas, God rest his soul, who represented uh, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch and Michael Finley, um, Tim Hardaway. He gave me an opportunity and uh, started working there, continued to develop the international pipeline. We were run by a private equity company. And in 2008, they pulled the plug. And literally, we went from an operation of 80 people to about three people at the time wow. because they had to get rid of everybody. Wow. That baseball practice 
ended up getting bought out by Octagon. And I had no reason to be in Chicago anymore. I moved to DC to be with my now wife who was doing her uh, neurosurgery residency at Georgetown. And um, Alan Nero, who's the managing director of baseball called my then boss, Jeff Austin, who represents Steph Curry and has been in the business since 1984. And he said, you know what? There's this kid here I want you to meet. And in typical Jeff fashion, you know, why the fuck do I have to meet this guy? I'm too busy. I'm not interested in doing it. I really came with nothing. And, and he tells to this day, he said, I had no interest in hiring you. 30 minutes into the meeting, I said, I have to get this guy. And wow, that was kind of the start of my Octagon career. I'm sure we'll discuss many other things. But in a, in a very long-winded way, that is how I got to where I am. So what wow. happened in that 30-minute interview that, that turned Jeff from, I don't want to fucking meet this guy, to I have to have this guy on my team? You know what? I think it was really I uh, I came in and I told them, listen, guys, I understand like an Octagon was a very well respected company at that point. I think we had like we had Rudy Gay. We had a Chris Paul. We had about six or seven <coughs> relatively quality clients. And I said, we are completely missing the boat on the international market. Right. I said, you need to give me the opportunity to build a structure to put together a team of people that can really exploit the international market, because the way that the U.S. Uh, market was going it was getting increasingly competitive, increasingly expensive. The profit margins were not there anymore. And so I put together a presentation. I said, this is where I really want to focus on. Um, I would say that my indisputable charm, good looks and humor helped a, a little bit as well. But that's probably the, <laughs> the backstory. But it really was it really was for me to come in and look at it differently and, and double down on the things that I've been doing for the last. I mean, by that point in 2009, it hadn't been that long, but eight years that I've been in the business. And I hadn't really had much success. But I spent the first 10 years, including the first two at Octagon, as people say now, just eating shit, failing miserably, missing out on clients, messing up deals. The first ever <coughs> draft pick I had, I was 21 years old. I went to Madrid. I stayed there for one month and signed this kid who was supposed to be the next Dirk Nowitzki. I still think he's about he was about 10 years too early. Seven foot guy, incredible feet, shoot, shoots the ball. And I signed him. I mean, everybody was after him. I mean, the entire world was after him. He's supposed to be a top five pick. I could not have fucked that thing up worse, right? And I didn't understand buyouts. I didn't understand he played for Real Madrid at the time, which if we anybody knows Real Madrid is the one of the biggest organizations outside of the US. And here was a 21-year-old kid not understanding that I needed to negotiate a buyout before the draft, not after the draft. So my first time in the draft, and it took me, oh man, it took me, this was 2003. The last time I was, the next time I was in the green room again was 2017. So it took me 14 years to get back to the green room. And my first experience was a guy who was supposed to be top five, fell out of the first round into the second round. So... <clears throat> I made every mistake known to man, and I honestly think that was the best sort of education that I can give, which is when I tell kids now who want mentoring, who want help, who want constant calls, my mantra has always been figure it out. You just find a way to figure it out. You, you know, I was in the business for 10 years, and somebody wrote something in the Canadian media about this new agent on the scene, Alan Walsh. And, and I remember reading it and thinking, I've been in the business for 10 years. Yep. And, 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 and it's like, hey, there's this new guy on the scene. Um, it, it literally takes 10 to 15 years to become an overnight success. But Alan, in your, in your process, think about your first 10 years, how many mistakes did you make? How many guys did you miss out on, right? How many times do you look back and say, <clears throat> man, I screwed that one up or man, I missed out because I didn't. That's part of it, right? It's part of it. And, and early on, I used to beat myself up. I used to, I used to make the biggest mistakes and I used to sit there at night and think, I, 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 I'm embarrassed. I'm in, yep. I'm, I, I just, I, I, I can't believe how much I don't know and how badly I fucked up that situation. And, and I agree with you. Every time you mess up, it makes you a better agent every I single agree. time. And there's that um, 
saying, I think it was Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison, I failed my way to success. And Absolutely. It, it's, it's true. There's a lot of truth behind that in failing your way to success. Um, but I, I came over time to, uh, and it was very hard, but to teach myself how to let go of the mistakes and not because they used to haunt me. They mm. used to haunt me and, and I learned over time to let them go and and not be so hard on myself. But it's hard, right? Because it's a people business. So you invest, we, we had a meeting, Alan, what was it, two weeks ago, when we were talking about investing emotional capital into things. And as an agent, sometimes you balance that because you say, I want to get completely emotionally involved and I want them to be my family members and I want to talk to them all the time and I want to be with their kids. And and they are, I think in agents, the word family gets used way too often. And it's, I, I think you have one family, right? Clients mm -hmm. can be as close to family as possible, but they are not family. And I think the hard part for any agent is that balance between being emotionally involved and looking at it as a business, because when anybody fires you, if you think about this, how many times, have, you know, <clears throat> in our business, it's so cutthroat, you get fired by a client, everybody pounces, oh, you see, they fired Alex, they fired Alan, oh, there's something wrong. You've, I've never been fired where someone will tell me, I don't like you. I don't like you as a person. I don't like your hair. I don't like your humor. I don't like you. It has always been, it's nothing personal. It's just a business decision. Yet we as agents have to figure out, well, how do we approach it? Do we approach this strictly business and this is an asset and I can treat it as an asset? Or do I look at it and say, well, there's many more layers to it. And I think there's a balance in between. <coughs> and I think every client is different. So um, one thing that you've um, always had that you brought with you to Octagon and you bring with you to your basketball practice is such a strong international presence. Um, what was it, you touched on it, but what was it like going to places like Madrid and other places all over Europe uh, and, and building a profile for yourself, getting known and then being able to recruit over there when you don't live there? So I would say the first I mean, it's like I said, I just, you just figure it out. I'm, I am comfortable. I traveled all over Europe when I was young, did the backpacking, did hostels, you know, traveled all over Asia. <clears throat> and I remember when I first started, I mean, I was 21 years old, staying in a youth hostel, trying to recruit MBA clients, telling them I'm 28 <laughs> years old. And I probably looked 19, right? <laughs> because nobody knew who I was. So I was pretending to be older. Um, and honestly, the first, I would say the first eight or 10 years, it's just, and Alan, you've done a masterful job of this too, the whole hockey group. <clears throat> it's meeting the, constantly just meeting the right people, right? Anytime there's an event, I was there. Anytime that there's a tournament, I would be there. And you just, you just network, right? And when you have nothing to sell, like I, I told this, I would sell the vision of who I thought I could be, not who I was at the time, if that makes sense, right? I thought I can be here. I'm here right now, but I'm promising you I'm going to be here. And what I ended up doing in 2000, so, you know, for the first, starting in 2001, 2012, and 2013 is when I really started to hit my stride, right? So about 12 years later is when I started to hit my stride. I'd been going back and forth to Europe and Asia for work for I would go seven or eight times a year and I would do these things where I would go for, I'd go to four countries in one week, you know, five countries in one week. I'm not going to lie that being European, most of the time understanding their language helped a lot, right? So if I'm going to Madrid, I speak Spanish fluently. It's, it, and I speak like a Spaniard, right? So it's, it's very, it's very, it's a very easy transition. Uh, I speak Italian. I, I can discuss with them, you know, I understand French. I understand Portuguese. I don't understand any German. That's a really difficult language. But the fact that I would come in and say, I'm European, I understand it's different. And I would never, there's this really big divide where they would say the American agent, right? It's, and you know this in hockey, it's, you know, you have the European guy and then you have the American agent. 
I was never seen as the American agent. I was seen as the European guy who lives in the US. Um, mm. And then in 2013, my wife was doing her fellowship uh, back in Chicago in neurosurgery and uh, she was extremely busy and we had just had our first son. And I just said, this is a year that I can't really travel. And so I spent the entire year kind of re establishing relationships there and building an extremely strong network of people that are bird dogs for me. They will do the ones, they're the ones who are out recruiting now. And um, <clears throat> they're going to every youth tournament the under, and you know this, under 15s, under 17s, you know, the division Bs in Estonia, they're the ones who are there doing all the legwork. And so I spent a good 12 or 13 years building up that network and those resources and then put people in place to say, now you guys do that work. And I'm going to come in when it's when it's important. Um, so that's really kind of how I've done it. And I'll tell you, Alan, I'm, I, I'm Greek. That's my home, right? That's my first language. It's my native tongue. I love Europe. I love recruiting in Europe. I love going to Europe. I love watching European games. It's a lot of fun, you know? And it just kind of, I don't know if it's a weird thing. Like when I go back, I remember my 21-year-old self and not knowing what the heck I was doing, you know? I... Mm -hmm. would have meetings at the Ritz Carlton and go next to a hotel. It was called the Ritz Roger de Julia, which was, I would say between us, which is not between us, a glorified brothel, right? Because I just <laughs> didn't know. I was saying, I'm staying at the Ritz. It was just next door to the actual Ritz. Um, it just reminds <laughs> me of that. And I, and I really enjoy it. Not the brothel part, but like going back to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you meet Yanis? And can you tell us a little bit about your uh, work with him uh, over yeah. the years? So I've, I've told this before. It was really, um, and Alan, you know this. We work all of our lives to get lucky, right? You All the mistakes, all the shit that you eat, all the fuck-ups you hope that one point you get that lucky break. It's kind of like any player, you know, that you represent Alan who's saying, man, just coach, just gives me a chance. If I just get a chance. Right. And I said this, it was for me, it was the right time, the right, the right time, the right place and the right nationality. I, in 2006, I got a random email from a, one of my closest friends now who unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago he was one of the original agents in Greece <clears throat> and he had hired, who's now my business partner with Giannis, who used to be a head coach, uh, an assistant coach with the Greek national team to be an agent. And in 2006, he sent me a random email saying, hey, um, Yorgos, I'd love to talk to you. You're Greek, I'm Greek, let's get together. That was 2006. And in 2012, I got a phone call from him and said, I think I have the next Magic Johnson. And at that point, I was like, come on, man. Like, that doesn't that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He sent me, everybody's seen it, the grainy videos. I've said it. I was like, I, I don't even know, you know, um, can I get this kid out of the country? He was undocumented. He was an illegal immigrant. And I remember just going there and, and watching him. And I would be lying if I said I had any idea that he was going to be this good. But <clears throat> there wasn't this massive recruiting battle. It wasn't like I was fighting all the big boys to get him. It was... We're partners. We work together. Here's Giannis. Take care of him. And that was that was it, right? I, I, I could glorify it in so many ways, but I was really, really fortunate that I had developed a friendship with this guy six years ago. And I say I was lucky, but I don't know, Alan, you're probably the same way. I don't do transactional relationships. I don't partner with people because they have a player. I don't hire people because they're related to players. I value the person that they are, how intelligent they are, how hard they work. And I, I honestly believe at some point you're going to get your break. And both of us were scrapping from 2006 till 2013. We were scrapping, trying to find talent, trying to find, you know, our way. And we just, we got lucky. You know, my business partner was a coach at the, had started his coaching career at the place that Giannis grew up playing. And the coach there called and said, this is a kid that you really should look at. And that was it. You know, that was kind of how we ended up getting together. And that was when he was <clears throat> 17 years old. And and most people don't know. I actually didn't meet Giannis until he got off the plane in New York for the draft. He didn't oh. even know that I, he didn't even know I spoke Greek. 
And he thought wow. I was just some Greek American who was being passed off. And I remember he got off the plane, I introduced, and I started speaking Greek to him and he was floored. He had no idea. And Greek, like a Greek person. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, and all, after that, I guess they say the rest is history, but I, I will say this. Giannis has said this before. Um, he's become, he said this somewhere. It's like, he's become a better player and I've become a better agent since we've started working together. I don't think I have helped him become a better player in any shape, way, shape or form. We actually 10 years now, I don't think I've ever had a discussion about basketball with him ever. Um, but I will say that he has absolutely made me better at my job because he's provided opportunities for me that I wouldn't have had. And, and in certain situations that, you know, only people who are lucky enough to work with someone like Giannis at that caliber are going to have the ability to do. Well, there was an interview that, that, that Giannis gave, um, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about you and his relationship with you. And it, it struck me. It, it 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 affected me to my core. What he said, um, he said, he's not just my agent. He's become my best friend. Hmm. And in in everything that you've said previously and how you qualified it about the relationship, that speaks that speaks to me. That speaks to my soul. When I yeah. hear a player say that about his agent, no, and and it's and it's a. I mean, we have a wonderful relationship, and I think with all the guys, we have a wonderful relationship. I think the difference with him was when he came here, he was alone. Right? He barely spoke English. Hmm. I'm in Chicago. He's in Milwaukee. It's an hour, fifteen minute drive, and <clears throat> he'll say this: I was his only outlet. He didn't know if his family was coming. Right? He didn't know anyone. He's a very guarded person, anyways, and called me every day just to hear Greek. Right? I would go to Greek town here, get food, bring it up to him. I would go to Target and help buy him sheets, you know? And he just, he didn't know. And he was such a, back then, like he was such an innocent kid who was just so wide-eyed and, and never been away from his family. And I think I was a little bit of a crutch, you know, for him, which is, you know, which is natural, you know? It's, it's mm-hmm. a fellow countryman who speaks the language. Um, and as with most guys, you know, you go through a lot, but with him, I mean, we've been through a, a lot together. We traveled the world together. I mean, we through good times, bad times. Um, you know, he, unfortunately, when his father passed <clears throat> in the funeral, it was his family and myself and my business partner. That was it. He didn't have anybody else there. He didn't want a big funeral, didn't want anything. And I remember calling him and saying, you know what, man, this is the time for your dad. Like, I don't want to be there. I don't want to encroach. And I think that's a, an important thing that I think agents don't do is understanding limits and understanding boundaries, you know, and understanding your client. I understood with him, family is so important. I said, you know what, man, I, I, I shouldn't be there. I don't, this is a time for you to mourn with your family. And he said, you're part of our family. You have to be there. Right. And I said, okay, wow. you know, I'm, I'm going to come up there. Um, so, uh, we, we do have a strong relation, but, it, but in any, like Alan, you know, this in any business, you, what I like about, you know, I would say most of my clients, Giannis, Bam, all the other guys is we don't always agree. We're going to get into arguments. We're going to get into disagreements. I'm going to say things that they probably don't agree with. I'm going to tell them to do things they don't want to do. I think that is the real strength of an agent to be able to, or a real strength of a relationship to be able to tell someone, don't do this. I don't agree with you. You're being an idiot, right? You're being irrational. And that doesn't mean like, oh, I'm going to fire you. I'm moving on. It's I respect your opinion and I'm going to think about it. Right. And that to hmm. me is where I think when we talk about that balance of being emotionally involved in, in business, being able to have that sturdy relationship to say, I don't agree with what you're doing, or I've presented this opportunity and you're looking at it irrationally. That's when I think you're the strength of your relationship really grows. And Bam Adebayo, and he uses his name a lot down in Miami, we're incredibly close. Part of it is because I don't, buy into all the bullshit, right? When everybody's telling them how fantastic he is or everybody's saying how great you're doing this, I might be myself and his manager, Kevin Graves, might be the few people that say, you know what? No, you're not You're not doing what you're supposed to do, right? Or, mm. you know what? I want more endorsements. Man, in Miami, you got you to gotta really perform. You got to perform at the highest level because Miami Heat, as, as great as they are, 
they're like pale in comparison to Jennifer Lopez, right? Jennifer Lopez <laughs> is going to get every opportunity. So like you got to separate yourself. Um, but, but, I, but I do believe that being honest and upfront, I think it's, it's cost me clients without a doubt in my mind. Um, I think I haven't signed as many clients because I am very, very blunt because I, I, I don't know any other way to be. Um, but I'm okay with that, right? If, if I don't get a client, if a client fires me because I'm honest, then it wasn't meant to be anyways. And I think the relationship would not last very long because I am not one to cowtail and say, oh, no, you're absolutely right. Oh, yes, you know, coach should have played you more or it didn't matter that you showed up late for pre-game. They should allow you to just play anyways. Like, you have to be honest. You have to be upfront mm -hmm. with them. And I'm sure, Alan, you've dealt with that a lot. There's guys who won't do what they're supposed to do. And at some point, you have to say, hey, man, you're, you're fucking up, right? I, I can't keep covering for you. And, and there are times where you have to have that private, very difficult conversation. And there are some people that just can't do it that can't look at, at, at a client in the eyes because they're so afraid of being fired and saying, you cannot continue doing this. This yep. cannot happen anymore. Um, and, and those are difficult conversations, but that's if you're not prepared to have that conversation, you shouldn't be representing players. Well, and, and not, if, you, if you extrapolate that, if you think about it, I don't know if it's the same in hockey in basketball, the entire industry is about self-preservation. <clears throat> you start from the most basic. Mm. An agent doesn't want to get fired by a client. A client wants to make sure they keep their job. An assistant coach doesn't want to lose their job. The co head coach doesn't want to lose their job. The general manager doesn't want to make mistakes. The assistant general manager doesn't want to put his name on something in case it's a mistake and he gets fired. There's In the NBA, there's 30 general managers. There's 30 assistant general managers. All of them don't want to lose. You've got... Obviously, you've got the, the best of the best, but there's so much self-preservation in this industry where I think mistakes get made consistently. Because if if I'm worried about being fired by a client, I'm not advising him right. If I'm worried about, you know, mm. uh, pissing off a team because I'm doing what's best for my clients, then I'm not doing the best job. If a team doesn't draft someone because they're worried about what it's going to look like in the press, they're not doing their job. But I don't know if it's the same in hockey. Self-preservation is, is literally their breakfast their lunch and their dinner in the in the NBA. And that's not just front office people, it's agents, it's players, it's physical therapists, it's marketing people, it's PR people. They just don't wanna lose a client and they don't wanna lose their job. The moment that you say, I'm gonna do the best job that I can do and whatever happens, you say, fuck it, whatever happens, happens. You say, then, then that's when I think it, you have a little bit more freedom to do your job the right way. Because if- It's empowering. It's empowering. I tell this to everybody that all the guys that work for me, stop being scared because if you are scared, the client's going to fire you anyways. If you are scared, you're not going to get the best deal. So mm -hmm. just do what you think is best. I support you. I will help you. I will, you know, help teach you. But at the end of the day, if you do not treat this, you know, like and, and be honest and upfront and say what you feel, you're fucked anyways. So you might as well do what you think is best. Yeah. Adam? Well, I mean, letting go of that sort of anxiety that the two of you are talking about has got to be very, very difficult for people, though, because you work your whole life. And uh, I have a colleague. His name is Chris Johnson. Alan knows him, Alex, and, and he's a insider. And he, he talks about working in sports. And he said, you know what? It's We're working in the candy store. We're working in the place there where everybody wants to be. And, you know, in the positions that the two of you are in, you're right next to the people that kids grow up idolizing. So it has to be, it has to be very difficult to be able to manage your own internal fears all the time on stuff like that. I have to ask, do you guys for, you know, when you're preparing for a difficult discussion that you guys were referencing earlier where, Hey, you know, you, you can't show up late anymore. You can't do this. You can't do that. Do you guys sit down and think about, how you're going to plan out this call, how you're going to approach it with the player, and, and how do you do that? I don't. I just... No? You just go right into no, it? Not even, I just go right into <laughs> it. Because I can't, I can't script anything, right? And, and I don't mean to say, listen, 
I do believe that as agents, you have to have a healthy fear. You have to be like, I need to do the best job. Otherwise, this guy will fire me. I don't mm -hmm. make $40 million a year. I can't say, you know, if you fire me, who cares? I got my kids, then they're all set. I don't. We all have families and we have to continue to do the best work that we can. And I think a healthy fear is okay, right? To say, don't get lazy. Don't mm -hmm. rest on your laurels. Make sure that you're crossing every T and dotting every I so that you're not in a position where someone can say you didn't do A, B, and C, right? So I think it right. is important to have that and to have that sort of perspective to know that there are 10 other agents that would sign your client in a heartbeat. So I have to continue to do a good job. Um, but when it comes to, I mean, I don't know if this was, I don't know if Alan, you're the same way. I, I, my father growing up was, is an, is an incredible man. He never said very much until he would get really angry. My mother yelled at me every single day from the moment I woke up to when I went to bed. Right. And I've taken that <laughs> mantra with my literally yelling all the time. But the reason I bring this up is because. She wouldn't think of it. She wouldn't say, well, I need to tell Alex this and this. She would just say it. And then once the conversation was done, I love you. Let's move on. Right. I'm a very much of a person where I don't hold grudges. I say what I need to say and I move on. So with these guys, if I'm going to have a tough conversation and you have enough relationship, I'm going to tell you what I need to tell you. You can accept it. You cannot accept it. But it's my responsibility to tell you what I think. Right. And then we just move on. If we're okay, great. If we're not, and you got to understand, and I'm sure, Alan, you can speak to this. You're having these conversations because you want what's best for them, right? Mm -hmm. You're not doing it for any personal motivation. You're saying, I want you to be successful. In order to be successful, I think you need to do A, B, and C, and you're not doing it. So this is what I think. Um, I don't know if, Alan, you prepare, but I, I, I've wung it. I, like I said, I just wing it. I've been winging it my whole life. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't really prepare before a conversation. Um, but I'll will sit down and and start a conversation and and start talking about an issue before getting right into uh, uh, a, a hard issue or a, a major problem that needs to be addressed as as a way of just getting the conversation to the point where you can then go into that area. I'll mm -hmm. I'll not want to come in, sit down, and hit somebody over the head with a two by four. Uh, you, you know, before you, you, before you get comfortable and put your napkin in your lap, so to speak. So, uh, in that respect, there, there's a, a, a little bit of a, uh, chronological order or process to getting into it, but mm -hmm. I don't sit down and then start scripting anything out as to, you know, you know, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to say this. I, I don't do that. So, Alan, so then, I got a question. Speaking I, I got a question oh, yeah. for Go ahead, Alex. Alex. I got a question for Alex. Because we are, you and I are very similar and we have a lot of the similar mindset. If I were to ask you to boil down your profession to the one thing, if you would describe what the most important part of your profession is, in like one sentence, what would it be? Giving clients the ability to be their best every day. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, I would say mine is managing expectations. That is <laughs> what I do all day, every day. Because I think <laughs> giving, giving, your, giving your clients the ability to be their best is also to me falls under the umbrella of managing expectations. If you think about it, <laughs> from the moment I wake up, I manage the expectations of my kids. No, you cannot have chocolate for breakfast, right? And no, we are not going to watch eight <laughs> hours of TV tonight. Then you go into work, and it's and and from everybody, it's you manage the expectations of your clients, what you expect them in the draft process, where they can get drafted, what their contract can be what their endorsements can be. Mm -hmm. You manage the expectations of the teams. What in the draft process, what access can they get? What information can they can they have? Um, you manage the expectations of the of your brand partners. How often is our Giannis and Bam going to be able to do a shoot? How often can they get on the phone? How many social media posts? 
You manage the expectations of your group, the people that work underneath you. How often can they travel? Where can they go? And I have said, if you manage the expectations the right way, you can be absolutely successful. Every time I have made a mistake, I did not manage expectations. Or, or I manage expectations here. The guy had expectations here. And I just said, that gap is too big for us to be able to work together. But I don't know if you feel the same way. I feel that it's all day, every day, I manage the expectations of my clients, the teams, the brand partners, and all the requests that come in from day in and day out. It's interesting. I, I never thought about it from that perspective, but listening to you, you know, that's certainly a, a, a key part of, of, of what I do and what we do every day, 100%. Uh, but my personal experience, you know, players in, in, in the NHL are more likely now to be on longer term deals. And I mm -hmm. think there's a tendency or trend in the NBA over the last several years to go with shorter term deals. Yep. And, and I think there's a, there's a, a different mindset of the player when he's on a six year deal or a seven year deal. Um, he's not thinking about his next contract. He's thinking about and focusing on role performance, um, maybe some marketing, but it's, it's not like, I'm coming into a contract year, which is a entirely different situation. I think you deal with that a lot more on the NBA side than we do on the NHL side. I, I think we do. I think we, I don't, I don't know if it's the same in the NHL. We, there's a lot of comparative um, discussion, you know, why did this guy get this and why did I not get that? And I, I don't know if you feel the same way. I've told people my fundamentals on negotiating are actually very basic. Um, and, and you know, maybe this podcast will go out and people will be like, well, that's why you can't negotiate a contract. It's, <laughs> it's really simple. There's two, for me, there's two things that are paramount. Timing and leverage. Those are the two things, right? If you have timing and leverage, you will always get the deal that you want. If either one of those two does not exist, you will end up settling for the deal that you get because it's simple and it's simple math. You know, when you look at it this summer, there was, I mean, I think they said something, 70 guys that were on NBA rosters last year do not have jobs this year. There was no money under the cap. There was no roster spots available. So people were getting squeezed out. I could have had the best possible player, but, and I could have had three teams that wanted him, but the timing of the of the money under the cap and the money available in free agency was not there. So I'm going to end up settling. Or the money in free agency is there, but I only have one team that wants my guy. I don't have the leverage. So I think a lot of times we get caught in as agents. And I don't know if it's the same thing for you, Alan. Like You guys are incredible at what you do and the clients that you have and the contracts that you get. But to me, it's, it's really amazing that... Um, if, if I don't have either of those two, I will end up settling, right? It's just, it's very basic. And I think agents sit there and say, we're going to study the CBA and we get all these stats and we're going to make teams want to sign you. If you don't have timing, you don't have leverage. You can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. You know, that's just, that's just the way that it is in our, in our business, unfortunately. And, and, and leverage is power. And, yes. and, and, and that's the power you have in the negotiation. Um, all of the analytics, all of the reasoning, all of the um, arguments that you can put together, if you don't have the leverage, you've got nothing. <laughs> and you can't, you can't put a square peg in a round hole. I had a guy working for me, the guy who's working for me, who had a free agent last year, and he couldn't understand why all the teams didn't want to sign him. Yeah, but he does this, 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 and this. And I would talk to the gym. He's like, I don't like him as a player. He's like, but look at his stats. You know, I don't like him as a player. I don't think he fits our team. So you can't force these guys. I mean, they spend millions of dollars on scouting. And at the end of the day, we said this from the beginning, this is a people business. As much as people get into the analytics and the stats and whatever 
you could show them, you could throw the kitchen sink at someone. And if at the end of the day, he's like, I just don't like him as a player. That's it. There's no other discussion to be had. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I've started realizing that there's a lot of guys. I don't know if you get this in your, in your field, Alan. I've told people this. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter how much I believe in you. What matters is what the market says. I've got a guy right now who played for the Bulls last year, and he still doesn't have a job, and I'm stubbornly, stubbornly saying you're an NBA player. I'm stubbornly saying I believe that you've got a skill set and you can play. It is now almost December 15th. Maybe I'm wrong, and that's showing to me like what I believe doesn't matter because if 30 NBA teams see it differently, it doesn't matter what I say. And I think – I don't know if you guys get this. I'd be curious to know. We get penalized by telling people, hey – the market isn't there for you. And we'll get, well, you don't believe in me. It's got nothing to do with that. It is our mm-hmm. job to say, I'm going out to the marketplace and show you what there is for you. And I have the relationships and I have the knowledge and I have the experience. Maybe it's not there. Do you guys get the same thing in hockey? If a guy's not getting a deal that they're looking at it as you're not believing in me as a player? Yeah. And and how are you selling me? If, if, if there is an interest in me out there, then you're not selling me properly. Yeah. And, and it's like, y- you've got to understand there's a cap. Teams are capped out. There's only so many roster spots. There is a pool of over a hundred available players. Teams spend hours, days, and weeks putting together what their needs are where they're going to dedicate their few available dollars towards, whether it's upgrading a goalie, whether it's a defenseman, whether it's a centerman, it's how are they going to do that? And they, and they've made those decisions. And then you're in there and you could be fighting. You can be arguing. You can put together the best profiles and, and, and you could be passionate and you can pound the table and, 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 you can believe in it with your heart and soul. And then the guy looks at you and says, we've got our list and he's nine or 10 players down on our list. And no matter what you say right now, mm-hmm. we're not changing where our, you know, the list that we've put together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 and if you, and if you go back and explain that to the player, some players can accept that the market is speaking to me and other players will say, well, you're just not doing it properly. When Bam Adebayo was going through his extension <clears throat> and he was, you know, the four guys that got the max extensions, it was Darren Fox, Jason Tatum, um, Donovan Mitchell and Bam got their max extensions of $180 million in that summer. Those, him, those are all of his friends. Darren Fox, he went to college, Jason Tatum, he grew up with, he knows all those guys. Those three guys on the first day of free agency signed their $180 million contract. So I'm getting calls. Man, what about me? What about me? What about me? And I said, listen, you have to trust me on this. Pat Riley is an OG. He's just, he does it a certain way. I know what he's doing. He wants to show you his plan to preserve cap space. I said, be kind of like a good teammate. And just all he wants to do is sit with you. And if he says, if if you look him in the eye and say, you know, Coach Riley, I get that. I appreciate it, but I want my money. He's going to give you your money. So let's not, no expletives, no getting angry. This is the process that we need to go through. Fine, fine, I'll do it. He went in there. Coach Riley had a whole thing, this guy and this cap and this and this and this. And Bam said, with all due respect, Coach Riley, I can't say no to $180 million. Mm-hmm. I need to take the extension now. He said, great, we'll drop the paperwork. That was it. But I knew we talked about expectations, right? He's a max player. I, to me, he was one of the, the best players in the NBA. But I, I managed the expectation to tell him, I'm not, oh, this is bullshit. Why did they not pay you? You needed to be first. It was, these are the steps that we need to go through to make sure who cares how we get there? Who cares how we get there? Right? Let's get there. Right. Yep. And this is my advice to you. And that, that was it. Right. So it's not a question of how are you selling me? What are you telling these guys? I wish sometimes that some of the players would say, you know what? You guys are the experts. Tell me (laughs) what, you know, I I don't know if you might get this a lot, Alan. I've told all the guys underneath me, 
Start representing players that are going to Europe. Start representing players that are going to play in Ecuador, in Finland, in Estonia. Because the responsibility of a guy coming to you saying, I have $50,000 on the table. Do I take it or leave it? It's, it's still a responsibility, but it's very different than you've got $100 million on the table and you say, no, wait it out another year. You need to learn how to build that confidence and have that relationship with a guy to say, I, you've probably heard it a lot of times, Alan. I'd be curious to know how many guys call you and say, "Tell me what to do." That is an um, awesome responsibility. And and I I've over the years now I I've been in the business now. This is my twenty uh, seventh year in the business. So there was a, a a real difference when I was in my thirties versus now uh, being fifty seven. You know, the NHL, um, especially NHL management, is a fairly close-knit community of people who have been recycled through several teams over the years. Uh, I'm dealing with people now as GMs that started in the business with me 27 years ago mm-hmm. in, in many respects where we would be together jumping on planes, staying at hotels, uh, grabbing a beer or two at night, going to under 17 and under 18 games all over the world. And, uh, you know, there's there's a GM today in the NHL, and we laugh about, you know, being in a hotel room together in Slovakia, uh, emptying out uh, my, my mini bar of alcohol and then going into his room at 4 a.m. and emptying out his mini bar. And you have that relationship with people, and, you know, 25 years later, he's a GM in the NHL and I'm dealing with him, but we have a history and yes. that history is important. I'm not going to give him a favor. I'm not doing a favor for anybody. I'm not giving him anything other than there is a level of credibility, integrity and trust. And in, and in a lot of deals, you need to trust the other side at some point to get the deal over the finish line. And it's very hard sometimes to get a deal done with somebody you don't trust or with somebody you don't know versus somebody Mm -hmm. you've done 15 deals with over the years. And there is that level of, I know when he says that I can trust him on his word Mm -hmm. and he's not going to turn around and screw me on it. Yeah. And I well, think that is a big factor in those deals as well. Well, and I think the the there's there's GMs in the NBA that if they told me something, I, and they if they told me in two years this is going to happen, I would trust them implicitly. I would lock it up, put it in the bank, and say, "Great." There's other people that I would say, "You tell me that today, and tomorrow I don't I don't believe it." Right? And I think part of it is having that relationship and. And honestly, having the experience to 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 deal with players. I mean, I had a guy, <clears throat> how many years ago? This was like three or four years. And in free agency, I don't know how it is in hockey, in the NBA, it moves so quick. I mean, it moves really, really fast. By the time free agency starts at 6, by 11 o'clock at night, almost almost the entire free agency is done. And you got still the stragglers that, that go day two, day three. And it's really important as an agent to work with the team. And when you give your word... It's incredibly important to say, yeah, we can't sign the contract for six days, but I gave you my word. I had a, I had a deal with a guy, I think four or five years ago. I negotiated with a GM. I had two teams interested. We talked about timing and leverage. I had two teams interested that were really interested. One was at, I'll give you the number. One was at like, you know, 8 million. And the other one, well, they're both at like 8 million. Another one came up and said, all right, we'll get to 10, 10 million a year. I went back to the other team and I said, hey, guys, I got 10 million on the table. Can you match? If you match, he will come to you. Can't do it. I want to call that. I said, I want to be abundantly clear. You cannot match the $10 million number. No, we can't. Great. Shake hands. I appreciate it. We're going to go in the other direction. Call the other GM. Guys on board. They're happy. They call all the rest of their free agents and say, you know what? Um... We're not, we, we've got our guy, you can go. The other free agent go sign somewhere else. 
I get a call 15 minutes later from the other team saying, from my client saying, hey, man, this other team just called me, said they'll pay the 10 million. I was like, excuse me? The other team called me and said, I said, wait, they called you? I said, he said, yeah. He said, they've been calling me for the last 20 minutes saying that they'll give me the money. I said, they, 20 minutes ago, they told me they couldn't match it. He said, well, that's where I want to go. It's like, hold on a second. You've, like, now I have to go back to this mm. other team, which I, I have a great relationship with them, and tell them we're backing out. They've lost out on all of their free agents. And to me, what I did is I went to them and I said, guys, I've known, I've known this guy for like 15 years. I said, you know me. You know who I am as a person. You know the work that we've done. I said, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I, I, we have to back out of this. I said, I am going to donate his fee to a charity of your choice. I know that doesn't mean anything, but I'm going to do whatever I can to make it up to you. Right. And hmm. to me, I was so embarrassed by it. I was so incensed. But as you said, because I worked so hard to develop a reputation, someone that you could trust, they knew that it wasn't something that I had done. And for the, it was funny, for an entire year, the other team that he ended up signing with, I had them on timeout. I re didn't return <laughs> any of their calls. I didn't return any of their texts. I refused to engage to the point where they had the commissioner reach out to me and say, okay, let's bury, like, you need, you need to, to talk to these guys because I refused to. I said, you broke, and then, and, and, like you said, an unbreakable code that if you give your word to someone and you made me break, I have never gone back on my word in 21 years and you made me do that, right? And that to me, when you talk about, you always want to get the best deal for your clients, but you want to do it in the right way, an honorable way. I don't, and I'm sure you do the same. I don't bluff. I don't tell teams, oh, I got something else. These guys know way more than I do. They know who's signing where, they know what cap is going on. So I've always said this, you negotiate for the best deal. Once you find a fair deal, you accept it. You don't play games. And these guys, it's a cyclical business. You screw somebody one time, it's going to come back to you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of the code that I try to live by. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, Alan. I can't tell you how many times uh, in free agency during you know, what's commonly referred to in the NHL as free agent frenzy, having a GM say, nope, not doing that, not going there. Um, you know, you got that offer on the table, go ahead and take it. I'm like, okay, but we hang up the phone. I'm going to take that other deal. Yep. You go ahead and take it. I'm not doing that. Okay. You're sure. Yep. I'm sure. Okay. Get off the phone. And literally two minutes later, okay, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, a couple of times, I've already made that call to the other team and I've said, okay, we're taking your deal now. And then you have the other team come back and say, okay, well, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. And, and yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult situation, but what it, the times that it's happened, I've said to the player, okay, they said, no, they said, no. We have a yes over here. Are we taking that deal? Yeah. Okay. No matter what happens, when I call and say, we have a deal, we have a deal. Do you want me to make that call? Yeah, make that call. Okay. So over time, I've learned you need to say that because oh, yeah. there is a window of a minute or two or three or five where anything can happen and you don't want to be that guy to go back on a deal. You know, you care about your reputation. You know, that situation you've been in, I've been in a couple of times. And it's it, it's terrible because you build your reputation over your lifetime and and you care about it. And you don't ever want to be known as a guy who's, whose word doesn't mean anything in this business because that's one of the most important assets we have. People can think Alan Walsh is a son of a bitch. Alan Walsh is a fucking asshole. Alan Walsh is psycho out of his mind. But no one says Alan Walsh doesn't keep his word. Mm. 
Exactly. And, and, and that to me is the most important thing. Well, I think you, you do it over time. I mean, even on the flip side, there's, there's, I remember this was a couple of years ago. I had to deal with a player and I called a guy who was with the GM of the Atlanta Hawks who now is Sacramento. And I said, I said, this is a deal I have on the table. Um, can you do it? And he's like, no, I can't do it. I said, okay, well, are you sure? I'm going to move on. I was like, if you can't, no, sorry, I didn't. I said, I have a deal on the table. I think I'm going to take it. Can you match it? No, I can't. Okay, then I'm going to move on. Are you sure? Yes. Agree to the other team. The next morning you wake up, he's like, why did you agree with the team? I said, because you said you couldn't match it. Well, I thought you were going to come back to me. No, tough shit. You said you couldn't do it. And he still says it to this day. He's like, that's when I realized with you, you don't bullshit. You're not going to tell me something that's not true. So now anytime I negotiate with you, I know if you say I have something, you have something. Because before, I didn't believe it. So you you do these things and you have a certain way. Everybody has a different way to negotiate, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to leverage. Like I've always said this. I'll never leverage one player for another player. I, you know, I'm never going to say I have Bam or I have Giannis, so you need to do this. Because then that means at some point I'm going to be leveraged. So I will not I will not do that, refuse to do it. And then secondly, I'm never going to tell a team I have a deal somewhere else unless I really have a deal. Because... I've seen it happen too many times, even internally. Hey, we have an offer here. We have an offer here. The team will say, go ahead and take it. And when mm. you don't take it, you've lost all your leverage. You've right. lost all your credibility. So you just you just do it on the up and up, right? You try to be as honest as you can. Listening to the two of you talk about this has been fascinating because I think that a lot of people believe that it's it's a lot of lying, a lot of cloak and dagger. And so to hear you guys say, no, you got to be pretty much as straightforward and honest as you can be is going to surprise a lot of people because, and I, I think there's going to be people who are like, yeah, I don't believe that. And it's, it's fascinating listening to it because you have to remember, I guess you, you both are in such tight knit communities. There's only 30 GMs in the NBA. There's only 32 in the NHL. There's only so many things that you can do trick wise. And I think it's that for me, listening to this has been one of the most fascinating parts of this conversation. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Alex, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I have, uh, I have one last question. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you've had and continue to have an amazing career. What's next for you? Where do no, you no. see yourself going in, in the next, you know, five, 10, 15 years of, of, of your ride? You know what I realized? I used to think about that a lot, but, um, March 11th of 2020 changed a lot of my perspective on where my life is going to be in the next five or 10 years. I, I can tell you, right. You can always, you can always say more, more clients, more business, you know, more revenue. There's, there has to be more than that. That makes sense. But I, I, you know, people tell me this all the time. Well, what, you know, where do you see the business in five years? I'm like, shit. The world closed down two years ago. I don't know what the fuck is going to happen two months from now, much less five years from now. What I try to do is stay ahead of the trends of the business, right? That to me is is really important. Where the business is going, getting involved in, and I'm sure you do, it's not just, it's not just the basketball part. A lot of the guys now are super interested in private equity, venture capital, tech investments, you know, media entities. And really being able to put a platform together for that. But honestly, Alan, man, shit, I I just try to make sure my kids get to bed, that I get the work done that I need to do, and then wake up at four o'clock in the morning the next day and do it all over again. Right. So I I don't I don't know. We take it day by day, man. Yeah, what people don't know is Alex is kind of famous for being up at uh, four, uh four thirty AM working out. I think you're an avid kickboxer and, uh, and and doing all that before before the kids wake up. Oh yeah, all of it. It's uh, I have my my it's a four it's a four a.m. wake up four to five. I probably had like six cup of coffee by then. Four to five, following up on emails, strategizing for the day, uh, getting a, a muay thai or a boxing workout in. Come back, kids wake up, make their breakfast, uh, take them to school. Um, sometimes might even work out again by about eight to nine, by nine 15, I'm in the office. 
and already by then have been awake for five hours um, and then just take the rest of the day and whatever comes, you know, I kind of feel if you don't, if you don't, <clears throat> I don't, and, and I'll leave you with this. I've realized over the last couple of years, if you don't take care of yourself, like you can't do the best for your clients either. Um, we, we are so invested in them and so emotionally invested in them. If you don't, like I had, this was, this was, when was this? Me and Giannis were in Sicily. No, we were, we were vacationing in Greece and went to Sicily together for a conference. And, you know, I had, I had not taken care of myself and, and, you know, put on some weight. And Giannis looked at me, and said, man, listen, get your shit together. I can't have you represent me looking like that. I was like, okay. <laughs> right. And I've been, I've been working out all my life. And I just said, that was, that was enough for me to say, it's it's time it's time to it's time to get it together, you know. So um, ever since then, I'm 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 very I'm honestly maniacal about getting up early in the morning. People people hate it in my group. They hate the four ten a.m. texts or the email saying I'm cutting your travel or why did you do this? Because they know when they wake up, it's it's not pleasant. Woj and Woj, who you guys know is one of the greatest reporters in the NBA said that he loved breaking stories at about two o'clock in the morning so that when other reporters would wake up in the morning, they'd say, oh, fuck, we got beat to it, right? So what <laughs> I want to do is wake up. And so when people wake up in the morning, they see the email from Alex being like, oh, fuck, what is he complaining about? <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, listen, it's a it's a privilege being your colleague and uh, working it, with you here. inside Octagon and really honored for you to spend your time here with us today and visit with us and tell some incredible stories and talk about uh, your philosophy representing players and, and, and really a great, great overview of your entire journey into the NBA and as uh, one of the leading NBA agents. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much appreciate for your time. It. Alan, thanks so much. Adam, Jesse, I really appreciate you guys. And, and Alan, it's been wonderful working with you and, and seeing how you guys operate. And um, I really appreciate you guys doing this with me. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild, Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN.